I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. Thank you for listening to Cauldron. I'm your host, Cullen. Today we have an interesting story about the English Civil War and Oliver Cromwell and the Battle of Nasby or Naseby. Uh, but before we get to that, I just wanted to say thank you again for your patience, and um, you guys are fantastic. Uh, all of the listeners to this show that I've dealt with have been absolutely phenomenal. Um, both in their enthusiasm for the show and their patience for it and their willingness to wait a little while between episodes. Um, I am constantly trying to tweak things and work at a quicker pace and get things better um, streamlined, but it's uh, it's a process, but we're figuring it out. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is go to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter now as well, and you can find the show uh, at Cauldron Podcast or at Cauldron Podcast 1. And we've got live streams, we've got videos, pictures, uh, quizzes, polls, all sorts of different things. Um, We're going to do some more prizes and and things of that nature as well. So definitely check those out if you are interested. In fact, some of our listeners are participating in some of the social media events. Uh, Tonight we are doing a live stream with one of the listeners where we're going to be talking about World War I aviation. So if that's something you're into, again, check it out. Uh, Let's see, there are a couple other shows we want to talk about. Peter Hart's Military History is fantastic. Check that out. Um, He's he's, he's the best. He knows what he's talking about uh, when it comes to World War I, like few people on the planet. So uh, well worth a listen. And also you've got Mike Cuna and Battles of the First World War podcast. Uh, that's also something to check out on social media. Mike and I are working on a side project with uh, a, a listener, historian, student who uh, we are teaming up with and we're going to have something coming down the pipeline. So keep your eyes peeled uh, for that and your ears open for it. But that's enough of that. Let's get right into it. Nasby has to be one of the most... Well, if not decisive, then most important battles in English history, in British history, and in world history. Uh, Decisive battles are not really considered uh, quite as cool as they once were. Now, uh, Now it's become a little passe to say that a battle is decisive. However, I think that goes mainly for post Napoleonic Wars. After Napoleon, battles take on less and less of uh, a role in terms of defining a conflict or deciding a conflict. Uh, You see World War I, World War II are basically just continuous major decisive engagements that actually become indecisive. Um, So, but I think Nasby, we can pretty, pretty squarely put it in that decisive battle realm because at Nasby or Nasby, 
um, at the Battle of Nazby, the royalist army is is utterly annihilated, ripped to shreds. And from that point on, British history and the world was never the same. Uh, the civil war between the parliamentary forces and the royalist forces in England in the 1600s was kind of uh, an anomaly, well, not an anomaly, but basically from the end of the Hundred Years' War with France and the War of the Roses, that you know, last great fight amongst the royal houses, um, the, the in- English people and England itself was fairly stable internally. It was a, a fairly peaceful kingdom, and uh, compared to the continental kingdoms, uh, it, was, it was a fairly peaceful, quiet country to live in. Uh, much of Europe at the time was ruled by a king, and, and so was England, but uh, England had a, a little bit stranger makeup of its government because it also had this parliament, and this put restrictions on the, the royal abilities. Not a heck of a lot, like the king of England was still very capable of doing pretty much whatever he wanted, but there were some little restrictions that were put in place by Parliament. The king had a pretty good thing going in terms of uh, of revenue generation. He collected uh, most of his money came from tariffs and from the rents and, and produce or production or produced goods off of royal properties. And there were a ton of royal properties. I believe that to this day the the British royal family is the largest independent. Um, landowners, I think. Uh, that might be wrong, but but it just goes to show you that if the king was getting rents and, uh, you know, was getting whatever he, you know, whatever was being made on his property, he was collecting a, a, a little sliver of that. Well, if you own a good portion of the country, then that's a, it's going to be a sizable amount. This pretty much helped to keep things peaceful in the sense that taxes were fairly low. Uh, so the general public was fairly happy and, and content, and it meant that the English monarchs didn't really need to go to Parliament and ask for more money. Because that was really, at the end of the day, that was the main point of having the Parliament there, is, is a check and balance against the king, uh, just racking up huge amounts of debt, because in order for him to, if he needed anything outside of his personal bankroll, then he would have to request it from Parliament. Most of the time, the king, since, like I was saying, since the War of the Roses, the turbulent end of the 1400s, the royal family or whoever was in charge was doing a pretty good job of of living within their, their very, very ample means. That kind of went out the door. In the early 17th century, things get a little wonky because the, um, well, the royal desires and uh, his, the, the king's wants and desires get bigger and bigger, and the accounts that he's pulling from in order to gain that money, uh, well, they're not, they're not growing with his intentions. Uh, and, and his intentions become more expansive. He's getting himself involved with uh, continental affairs that rack up huge bills, uh, and he's he's kind of trying to uh, show that he's got a military bent to him. He's got a number of failed offensives in Spain and Holland in the mid-1620s, and they're perfect examples of, of a royal, royal overreach. 
So to fulfill all of King Charles I's ambitions, and that's who we're talking about at this point, the King of England is is King Charles I. Um, The king is forced to go to Parliament. He demands that he be given a larger sum of money so that he can really assert England as a powerful player in continental politics. And, And this is also at the very beginning kind of uh, not not nascent, but early stages empire building England. So you have this this dual aspect here, where not only are we going to show that we're a powerful uh, country in terms of how we deal with the continental countries, but also how are we going to build as as quickly and efficiently as possible a large empire around the world. So you have King Charles calls Parliament. He asks for more money. Uh, Parliament is pretty excited that they're being involved because it's at this point that parliamentarian forces have started to conspire. Not not necessarily anything evil, but they feel as though they should have a little bit more say in the country's future and they should have a little bit more say in, in the international role that, that England is starting to play and really trying to maybe exert a little bit more control over the finances and military affairs of England. Well, they can't do that unless the king calls Parliament, and so when he does call it together uh, for his own purposes, it's a good, convenient situation for the parliamentarians because now they're able to use that opportunity to start to flex their own muscle. What happens next is pretty shocking to not just Charles, but probably the entire world. Uh, but if we look back, it's it's pretty, it seems like the obvious next domino to fall. Parliament gets called together. A bunch of these guys realize that they have uh, like-minded thoughts, that they are on the same page. Parliament should be a, a more important force in the, the government. And so John Pym leads a parliamentary push in January 1629, and he establishes an opposition party against the king. This is a party directly against the sovereign of the nation. Very, very brave move. Uh, probably the first of its kind in Europe. I don't know about the world, but in Europe for sure. And the the king's he he has some ammunition because. The king has these two lead subordinates, the Earl of uh, Strafford and an archbishop, and they both become kind of uh, sticking points for the uh, for the, the royalist party because John Pym really targets them, and he uses them as the weak entry points for uh, for the royalist cause. And the former Earl of the Earl of Stratford had an army of occupation in Ireland that needed to be paid for. And so that's a soft spot because Parliament is going to just use every bit of power to deny that. And then the Archbishop had kind of persecuted quite a bit up in Scotland, stirred up the Calvinists, and he wanted to requisition an army to bring up to Scotland to put the Calvinists down. So by 1640, Parliament had had enough uh, and they impeached the archbishop, which I found interesting. I didn't realize that Parliament had the ability to impeach an archbishop, but they did. And even more unsettly displaying their power or their growing, budding power, they forced the king to execute his second 
in command kind of guy is his best buddy there, the uh, Earl of Stratford in 1641. This is an important moment because it really is the crossing of the Rubicon. At this point, the king is maybe still thinking that there's a way to salvage this. Some people in parliament are probably thinking it's never going to go that far. But then there are the core, hardcore guys in parliament who realize that by taking the king uh, and forcing him to execute his own uh, appointed second-in-command or subordinate, they've proven that the king is powerless to parliament or at least he can be he can be uh he can be molded to do the bidding of parliament and that is a huge huge moment in terms of of the entire civil war and just parliament in general so parliament then goes on to pass a series of laws that expand their domain over the government and the country and really asserts itself as the, the driving force behind the entire nation. And then Pym, again, kind of sets the whole thing on fire because he charges the queen, Charles I's wife, with treason. Charles, probably or likely horrified, not really understanding what's going on uh, and not probably able to fully comprehend the the vastness of the machinery in front of him, that the parliament was becoming aware of itself and awakening to its own power, kind of like what you would assume Hal in uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Once he becomes aware or self-aware, it's kind of this massive, huge machine that can just do whatever it wants. And so as Charles is realizing this, he reacts really quickly to Pym. He charges him with the same thing, calls Pym out for being a treasonous bastard. Uh, Maybe not in those terms, but I'm sure that's what he was thinking. Uh, But at this point, it's too late. Uh, Parliament had been going around kind of quietly securing a lot of the financial and political uh, footholds in the country, uh, especially in London. They've really secured London. So the king really can't quite shake them out yet so he's got a a tuck tail and and run for it Uh, he flees london and this is a huge part of the whole civil war because kind of just turning over london to the parliamentary forces was a major mistake not the first that charles made and definitely not the last but uh one of the biggest so Charles leaves, and he goes up north. Uh, The northern part of the country is is kind of a royal bastion. He's got a a good amount of support up in that area. He establishes himself in in Nottingham and tries to call the people to to his aid. He's looking to get the countryside up in arms and and to join him in this next step. the result was a little less than he'd probably hoped for as much of the country pretty uh, especially in the in the vital south and east where there a ton of the trade the naval forces and and the population centers were based uh most of those went over to parliament and 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 most of those went without much of a fight i think a lot of the businessmen um you know napoleon famously called england a country of shopkeepers well, this is when that really started, when, or at least this is when it started to pick up steam, that 
this is a commercial country, a very, very commercial country. And England, a lot of the business owners and, and the people involved in the mercantile uh, trade system and all that, they all realized that parliament in charge is probably better for business than a king. So a lot of those stick around. And, and again, because a vast majority are based in, on trade and, and, and naval um, warfare, the south and east sticks with parliament. The king is able to muster the aristocracy, he gets Wales, and he gets a lot of the northern lands. So not a huge uh, amount of population in that area and, and really not particularly rich. And the aristocracy might go over to him, or they did, but... They're not, like, going to give him their money. They are giving him support. And if he if he needs it particularly, they might uh, give him a loan. But it's not like they're just handing him their cash, uh, unlike in, in other countries where you might have the king just demand the aristocracy give him all their money. He can't really do that in this situation. So uh, it's not looking too hot for Charles right off the bat. That being said, it's not all bad news for King Charles because his army is fairly well trained and turned out, and most of his officers are veterans of the devastating 30 years war that is going on in the continent. And this is this is one of those wars that we'll eventually get to some of the battles, but I mean, we're talking millions of people killed during this, and this at the time when we're you know, using pikes and muskets. So it's not like you can't machine gun down a group of people. There are just massacres of, of villages and towns. It's a horrific, horrific conflict on the continent. And England had been spared most of the violence of it because of the, you know, the positioning as an island. But we start to see the after effects, the, the, the reverberations of, of the Thirty Years' War as a lot of the officers were of, of King Charles' army, are veterans, and they're going to bring some of that, uh, bring some of that experience over to, uh, to England. And if, if properly used, it seemed not outside the realm of possibility that the king's forces would be able to just rip to shreds whatever untrained rabble the parliamentary forces were able to slap together. And Parliament had uh, did have uh, some some weak spots on their own. They had the money and they had the navy, which are both huge. And the king's continental communication and supply chain was pretty much locked up for most of the war because of that. But there were a ton of little squabbling power struggles within the parliamentary faction that made it a very bumpy start uh, to the Civil War. So you have... Like in anything, when you have a group of people, that's that's the beauty of a king is he's by himself. He makes a decision. Now, it might be the wrong decision and sometimes it might be the right. But even the wrong decision, if you have one singular mind behind it and they drive this, you know, drive it forward, then maybe the outcome isn't always going to be terrible. The issue with Parliament is that you've got hundreds of people, all with their ideas, all saying who should be in charge, they think they should be in charge, or whatever it might be, but it's it's the classic too many cooks in the kitchen, and it definitely made for an early, uh, early unsure-of-itself war plan by the parliamentary forces. 
1643 to 1644 saw the Scots take center stage, and both sides tried to figure out what the Scots would do and whose side they would take. It was kind of up in the air for a while. Uh, both the parliamentary and the royalist forces are vying for Scottish intervention on their behalf because the Scots have a good amount of men and that classic, you know, I don't know exactly how to describe it, but if if you have the Highlanders on your side, you're... Well, you've got a you've got a good trump card. So both sides really want the Scots to come. The Scots came south in January on the parliamentary side, and the victory at Marston Moor gave Parliament the control of the north, forcing the king south. So pretty early on, the king is pushed out of his uh, stronghold up in the northern country, and the Scots have taken up for Parliament, which is huge, really huge. It it actually changed the outcome of the war from the very beginning it seems like at this point now the king has has already got less and less of a shot at winning this thing uh, scrambling for a purchase to hold and regain his military footing charles heads to oxford and won a couple of little victories in the cornwall country in the summer of 44 that put him back on on solid footing give him a little bit more uh, juice in terms of of trying to recruit and prove that he's still got it and that, that there is a a way out of this that has him back on the throne. And by no means is Charles I a military mind. He had had a couple of successful uh, or somewhat successful campaigns, but really his military ability was never particularly high. In fact, he's, he's not much of a politician either. Uh, he's kind of a clumsy... Uh, clumsy plotter, uh, and and through and through, he just seems like a very uh, the wrong man for the wrong moment. Um, so definitely wasn't anticipating uh, uh, the second coming of of Hannibal or anything like that. Whenever Charles was in control, Marston Moore should have been a a, a massive victory. Uh, it, it was huge in that it, it gave control of the North back to Parliament and kicked the king out. But it should have been kind of, a, it could have been a war ender. But Parliament's not really able to get their act together and capitalize on their win. Uh, again, too many chiefs, too many factions within itself. And so the king is, is proving fairly wily. He's, he's just skilled enough to stay out of their grip or out of their grasp. And if he could string a couple of wins together, might swing some people back to him. Uh, you know, the the escape from the disaster at Marston Moor, the victories in Cornwall in 44, not a huge amount to brag about, but it's something. Your head's above water, and maybe you're going to be able to pull something out. One thing that parliament is able to do and charles just seems incapable of doing is addressing weakness uh addressing failure uh, finding a solution to a problem fairly quickly and the roundheads which are what the parliamentary forces would have uh, been called they pass what's called the self-denying act and this is really really key because they realize at this point in the war that their armies are being led by kind of uh, just non-professionals. It's being led by parliamentary members who feel like they are playing soldier for the day or, you know, feel it's kind of being led by 
uh, faction leaders and whatnot, and it's not working as a a true unit, uh, an army. It's it's kind of working as a bunch of little forces, all where people are trying to gain the upper hand on their own allies and all trying to steal the, the limelight and become the hero of the day. Well, the Self-Denying Act forbade all parliamentary members from holding, uh, or, or all pa- parliamentary members that hold office from leadership positions in the army. So all of those leadership positions in the army are then turned over to professional soldiers. And that's where we see the creation of what goes on to be called the New Model Army. One key exception there is that the only parliamentary office holder who was allowed to keep his position in the army was none other than Mr. Oliver Cromwell, whom we will get to. He is the key player in this and really at Nasby shows himself to be the deciding force, but he's allowed to keep his, his position even after the self-denying act. And the, the next step again is to create the new model army. It's, it's basically a scratch force of men for the most part, kind of forced or impressed into fighting. The new model army was quickly really actually shockingly quickly whipped into fighting order by its commanding officer, Lord Fairfax, and one of his subordinates, again, Oliver Cromwell, a renowned disciplinarian. They kind of slap this army together and then make it stand up and march forward and and figure out how to fight as one within months. And it's it's a very impressive feat um, just on its own uh, face value. The Redcoats are, for the first time, making their appearance here. They are on the scene with the creation of the New Model Army in their uniform. And this is the the ubiquitous Redcoat that we all know and love that will stick around until the 19th century at this point. So uh, the New Model Army is not just new, it's, it's, it's iconic. Uh, And by 1645, the spring of that year, the army is ready to take on the Royalists, also known as the Cavaliers, and see how they would hold up to to the new model army itself. The campaign that follows is very, very uh, interesting. There's a lot of feints, a lot of moves. Both sides are trying to outwork and outthink each other. And in the, the warfare of the time where you have blocks of men moving all over the place, it, it really is kind of an art. Um, and it's it's worth checking out a couple of maps and looking at. But basically what, what it boils down to is the king has a number of generals and support, subordinates that, that really hate each other. And two of these are two of his most important men, and that's Lord Goring and Prince Rupert. Goring is kind of an irascible asshole. Uh, Prince Rupert is uh, one of the king's early uh, supporters. He's audacious and effective as a commander. He's the nephew of the king, and he's been at war or in some martial fashion or, or position since the age of 14. Again, he's a skilled field commander, an excellent cavalryman. He has an inability to fully control his cavalier forces, and this will prove to be a major part of the Battle of Nazby. He's very good at raiding and and guerrilla-style warfare, but he just cannot rein in these cavalier cavalry units. 
Uh, and it, it plays a huge role at Marston Moore, and it will again uh, play a huge role at Nasby and really decide the entire entire engagement. Lord Goring and Rupert don't get along. They typically are at each other's throats, so Charles is forced to try and just keep them separate. So he's got to move his army around the country while keeping in mind that he can't have these two guys anywhere near each other, otherwise sparks will fly. So instead of making them work together, he, he pretty foolishly splits his forces, sending Goring north to retake York and hopefully try and make some ground up in the north. And he sends Rupert into the west to harry or, or to pester the city of Leicester, which he promptly actually takes. Uh, this separation is a good idea if you're just trying to manage a restaurant and you have a couple of waitresses that are fighting. But it is a terrible idea when you are trying to basically run a war. Uh, the separation is deadly as the royalists are, are already outnumbered. But now if he, if King Charles has one army caught by itself, he's going to have a very hard time getting his other army or his other forces there to help defeat the, uh, the, in, the attacking army. Uh, or help defend the part of his army that's under attack. And so what potentially could happen is that the parliamentary forces, if they can divide uh, Goring and Rupert, if they can put a wedge in between King's, King Charles's forces, they can turn around and deal with each one individually and defeat his entire army in detail. So soon after Rupert's success in the West, Charles is told that his base at the city of Oxford and this is kind of like central, center west of the, the entire country is this Oxford city. And it's, uh, it's basically was very vulnerable. And because Charles is afraid of losing it, he has to, he sends Rupert uh, down to try and protect Oxford, which is going to quickly become uh, a city under siege by Fairfax. The bait works because this is all part of Fairfax's plan. He's hoping to draw either Rupert or Goring down on him so that he can start to do that defeat in detail thing where he picks one off, he gets it engaged, and then his numbers just take over from there. He's able to defeat it. And then now instead of two smaller armies, he's got one tiny army to defeat. So the bait works. Charles takes it wholeheartedly and sends Rupert down to Oxford and Fairfax lifts the siege and starts heading north to meet the Cavalier army on the road as soon as he hears the good news that Rupert is on the march. What amounts to an encounter battle is in the offing as both sides know each other's general area. They know the direction that their armies are heading for the most part, but they really aren't sure exactly where they are. So the fog of war is playing a role here. Uh, they stumble into each other at a little town called Nasby. On the morning of the 14th, they lined up for battle with Rupert's army on a hill north of the town, and it was in a good position. He was in a very strong position. Uh, he had positioned his men on the hill just right so that they would be able to really maximize the defensive position. And as the smaller army, that makes sense because you have a defensive position 
the the high grounds, those are are false force multipliers. And since he's got a smaller army, he's ideally trying to multiply his force as much as possible. What happens though next is again kind of a indication that maybe Rupert is a little too aggressive or he wants to get this thing done with as quick as possible, but he makes a major mistake. Uh, he is scouting the roundhead line and he sees that they are, well, he perceives them to be withdrawing, moving closer towards Nasby. Uh, it's not the case. What Ma- Fairfax was doing was he was just redeploying his own men onto a slight hilltop uh, of his own on Mill Hill. And because Rupert misreads this, he moves his men and his entire line off of their defensive position, off of that little hill, and he moves them to engage. This is a major, major mistake because now his men, his smaller army, is going to be forced to do all the heavy lifting. They're going to have to be the ones moving across the field. They're the ones that are going to be using their energy to go uphill. Another thing that was a problem is that the battlefield was surrounded with or or littered with uh, spots of high, tall grass that was very hard to move in, and it broke up a lot of the line. So as the royalist forces are marching towards their enemy, their, their lines are kind of shimmering because the men have to move around these gl- grass, you know, uh, mounds and whatnot. So it's just, it's not a great situation. It's a big mistake on Rupert's part. And Fairfax is probably loving it. I, I would assume this is what Fairfax was hoping for, or if and when he saw what was happening, I'm sure he was shocked and stunned that it was going exactly the way it was going. So now that the lines have been reset and Fairfax has repositioned, Charles has moved forward. As with most battles at this time period, uh, there's a ton of movement and adjustment to the lines as formations are taking up um, their new positions and they're moving from one side to the other and all sorts of different uh, finagling goes on for much of the morning. Charles's army is lined up in, uh, lined up in a position that is pretty standard. He's got a mass of infantry in the center, and this is where he's got his veteran infantry and and a whole whole assortment of different units, but most of them are made up of pike and musketeers. And in between the, or on either wing of this mass of infantry in the center are two wings of cavalry, one on the left, one on the right. Fairfax has mirrored this line with his infantry in the center and the cavalry on the wings, but he had uh, a couple of different advantages, and he also did something very smart. Fairfax puts his youngest, most inexperienced men in the very front line. The thinking here is that his veterans in the back will keep those men engaged, keep them in line, and if they do break, it probably won't panic the third and second line of veterans. The reverse of that would be if the veterans up front panic, well, the the youngsters in the back line uh, have no chance of standing their ground. So Fairfax makes a good deployment choice there. He also has a couple of different things going for him. First off, again, he's he outnumbers the Royalists by maybe almost double. I've seen a couple of different accounts on numbers. We're looking at like 1,300 or 13,500 parliamentary forces and maybe 7,500 to 8,000 royalist forces. Uh, so it's it's a pretty heavy uh, lead that the parliamentary forces have over the royalists. 
The other thing that he's got going for him, Fairfax, his line movement has put him on the high ground on top of Mill Hill, like I was saying. So his men would be working downwards. The Royalists are going to have to be climbing upwards in the heat of battle, under duress. It's an exhausting, exhausting thing that that Rupert and Charles are going to be asking their men to do, whereas Fairfax is going to be conserving as much energy as possible. And then the third thing that he's done on the, and this is hedgerow country, so on the right-hand side of Rupert's army, on the far right where his cavalry flank is, uh, there is a large, dense hedgerow running along the uh, parallel to the flank of uh, the Royalist army. Behind that hedgerow, Fairfax has deposited a thousand dragoons under Oki, and this is ready to flank the either the cavalry or if the cavalry battle moves past them, they're ready to fly in and attack the rear and flank of the exposed infantry in the center of Rupric's line. So you have an interesting little potential game winner in the in the hedgerows there for Fairfax. At 10 o'clock, the fighting starts. Uh, before we get there, a dragoon. A dragoon is a cavalryman who actually fights on his feet. He's basically just a mobile infantryman. It's like the equivalent of today having a... Uh, Person, uh, uh, an armored personnel carrier. So really what happens is you've got the dragoons, they use the horse to quickly get somewhere on the battlefield, then they dismount. The 10th man in the fighting group will be the one that holds all the horse's reins, and then the, the other nine men get off, use their guns, and fight as infantry. In a pinch, they can also act as cavalry, and eventually they started to phase out and towards by the time of Napoleon they're basically just cavalry units that use guns Uh, so it's an interesting little unit and very particular to this time period in history a couple other things about the weapons and tactics of the time so we are in push of pike period Uh, excuse, excuse the alliteration there but right now this time period is is the very end of the pike the the maybe one of the most important weapons in all of history sees its last couple of 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 dying moments here where a pike plays a role uh, very rapidly the the gun is going to push this this weapon out of of use it retains some small uses some ceremonial uses but really the gun replaces it as it would everything else Uh, The guns that we're talking about, we are looking at matchlocks being the main firearm. There are advantages and disadvantages to both kinds of rifles. The matchlock is dangerous because if you use it at night, you have to have a lit match, so you expose yourself there. Uh, The potential for cartridge mishaps and and all sorts of stuff is there with the, the matchlock. The flintlock is a little bit more uh, expensive to produce, but you don't have to worry about carrying around matches and and the issue there. Uh, The other thing, too, is with the flintlock, it's kind of prone to misfires, as you would imagine with, uh, with a Bic lighter or a flint lighter. Anytime you 
flick that, it's not necessarily going to immediately catch. It might take a couple. Well, flintlock is like that, whereas a matchlock doesn't have that problem. So it goes both ways, but at NASB, the vast majority of the new model army there and the royalists are going to be using matchlocks, uh, and they are powerful firearms. They're not particularly accurate at distances. They don't have incredible punching power after a certain amount of space, but once they're in the right you know, kill zone, they're just as powerful as, as, as you would imagine a gun like that would be. And then outside of that, uh, you have your standard swords and, and other small arms weapons. Um, but for the most part, we're looking at matchlock, flintlock, and pikes. And again, push of pike is the term for the infantry melee and the fighting that goes on there. So the battle at 10 o'clock takes its uh, final stage and becomes a, a real fight to the death here. Um, it starts when uh, the Royalist cannons, the very few of them that are there, begin firing a very weak cannonade. I saw one account that said there were only two shots fired. Might have been a few more, might have been less, I don't know. Um, but one account did say that it was only two cannonballs fired. Uh, this is followed by the Cavaliers marching forward through the, the rough tall grass that we talked about. And they're trying to close the difference. So they're going to begin the, the uphill climb towards uh, the parliamentary forces, the Roundheads. The Roundhead left wing under Ireton, so the, the Roundhead cavalry on the left under Ireton, moves forwards and begins to uh, prepare itself to charge into Rupert's right. But the Roundhead infantry doesn't move at all, and instead they just wait on the hill, wait for the enemy infantry to come to them. This is a smart move, whereas Ireton is kind of going outside of his... He probably should have stuck around, but he, he's a little anxious, and he begins to charge towards Rupert. And before he can actually pick up any momentum, Rupert takes the initi initiative, charges his cavalry at the approaching Ireton, and a melee battle ensues. The two cavalry forces are going uh, round and round and, and really fighting hard uh, on, the, on the parliamentary left-hand side. Ireton's men put a beating on the Royalist front line, sending them reeling. And so not realizing that there's a second line of Royalist cavalry that hadn't broke and was still moving forward, Ireton turns his cavalry and begins to try and line them up and order them to slam into the exposed right-hand flank of the Royalist infantry. But what he doesn't realize is that Rupert's second line of cavalry is coming up, and they actually flip it on him and slam into Ireton's now exposed left-hand flank. So the, the cavalry is totally, totally uh, taken by surprise. The damage is catastrophic, and the roundheads are, are forced to flee the field. So the roundhead cavalry on their left is totally wiped out and flees. The cavalry forces uh, are, are just absolutely uh, thrown into disarray and they run off the field. The Royalist infantry at this time is outnumbered, but they've engaged the parliamentary forces and are even pushing them back. Uh, the, it, this is probably something to do with the experience of the officers involved uh, and the, the men involved in they're clearly not going to just break and let the new model army win without a real slogging match. As this is all happening, 
This is where the battle is lost by Rupert, because right now, had he swung his cavalry into the flank or the rear of Fairfax's army, Nasby could have been a royalist victory. Instead, Rupert isn't in control of his men. The, the, there's a pell-mell race to rout the forces of Ireton, and so Rupert's cavalry, his cavalier cavalry forces, just go reeling in every direction, trying to kill as many of Ireton's men as possible, and then they converge on the baggage train of the parliamentary forces. They're just looking for loot. They're looking to take as much money, grab as many baubles and jewels and whatnot as they can, and then get the hell out of Dodge. In the process, they have passed the battlefield. The engagement that happens from here on out, they play no part in. And in fact, they didn't even get any real loot or anything out of the baggage train because the defenders put up enough of a fight to send them packing. So it was a total waste of energy that only helped to lose the battle for the king. Basically, in an exact opposite mirror of, 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 of events, on the roundhead right, Cromwell and his Ironside cavalry attacked the Royalist cavalry on that side under Sir Marmaduke Lansdale. And this forces the withdrawal of the, uh, of the king's cavalry on that side as well. Cromwell's absolutely devastating with his Ironsides. They destroy Lansdale's forces or at least do enough damage that they send him, uh, send him off the field, send him packing. But instead of a mad dash rush at the backside of the retreating Royalist forces, Cromwell reins his men in, and then he sets about putting them on their next task. And their next task is to break the Royalist infantry. And they're so disciplined in order in this whole process that this whole maneuver is, is really brilliant. And, and Cromwell is so good at, at, at making sure that his men are in the right place that he actually sets a picket line with his first cavalry line to ensure his flank is protected from Lansdale's potential returning to the battlefield. So not only is he going to slam into the infantry's flank, but he's, his own flank, unlike what we saw with Ireton, his own flank is not exposed. It's a masterful uh, proof of battlefield control that Cromwell will exhibit time and time again throughout his career. And this is, this is the moment where Charles could have maybe salvaged something because it's at this point seeing what's about to happen and seeing the process one of his men says that he should uh, send in the, the king's guard uh, and the send in his reserves uh, but another one of his men gets it in his head not to uh, for some reason they they kind of convince him that it's not worth his life and so he doesn't uh, he holds back and then Cromwell slams his cavalry, his Ironsides go right into the exposed, completely denuded left-hand flank of the Royalist infantry. And then he also has Oki's dragoons swing around into the, the rear and right-hand side of the Royalist forces. And the push from the veteran line of, of infantry in the center under Fairfax starts to take a toll on the royalists and they by very quickly instead of of 
maybe coming away with a victory or or even a, a stalemate or anything like that, the new model army is swarming over the royalist army and just absolutely ripping it apart. The battle ends around midday, just two short hours after it had started. Charles's army was destroyed. He, uh, it was just completely split up and and shredded to the winds. He lost a thousand men dead, five thousand captured, with his artillery and baggage included. The Roundheads lost around a thousand men, killed and wounded. Uh, that's probably a low figure on both accounts for for killed and wounded, but it might be accurate. I've seen a couple of different ones that are a little bit higher. Uh, the pursuit of the Roundhead ar- or the pursuit of the Royalist army went on for fourteen miles, so almost to the the gates of the city of Leicester itself. Uh, that's how desperate the Roundheads were to to destroy their opponents. Uh, there's a episode that went on that was pretty pretty sad and and disgusting where you had some some parliamentary forces that had got in amongst the women uh women and family of some of the royalists and they did some pretty devastating despicable stuff but you know their blood's up it's a battle um you know you can't condone it but there was a significant number of of uh, rapes and killings uh, theft robbery and and the worst, well, not the worst, obviously, but one of the terrible things is they disfigured a lot of the women there um, so that they'd have a permanent reminder of where they were on the day of Nasby. So uh, that's one of the aftermath that is, is pretty, pretty horrendous. Charles basically has fled to Wales. He's got no chances left. He's got no more arrows in the quiver. Uh, this is it. Nasby was uh, Nasby was the end of the line. Now he continues to scramble for a good amount of time. After this, uh, tries to plot to pull some kind of uh, army together. Tries to get some some outside help from across the sea. Tries to get some Irish armies to come. Um, but during that whole time, the New Model Army is the sole dominant force on the island and basically is allowed to, or goes about just doing whatever it wants, reducing uh, royalist strong points all over the island um, and without any, without any interruption at all. The capture of Charles's baggage uh, train was particularly bad for him as his private correspondences were taken and used to great propaganda effect by the parliamentaries, um, parliamentarians, because it painted him and his wife to be traitorous. Uh, it, they were trying to get all sorts of help from outside and they would deal with anyone and promise anything to any country to regain their throne. And this goes a long way to to show the public what their king is is actually like. It's a huge coup for the parliamentary forces. And finally, taken in 1647 at Harlech Castle, Charles is, is reinstated by Parliament. He's made a puppet. Uh, he has no real power, but he, they had to put a king in charge. That's the basic... The way they looked at it is you can't have a country without a king, but we will make sure he's as powerless as possible. So Charles is back on the throne, and even though he's been given his, you know, honor and all that stuff, he's been given his throne, 
he is still trying to plot constantly. He's constantly scheming. He's trying to figure a way to get uh, back his his real power, his military power. He's trying to look to destroy the parliamentarians. And in January t- uh, 1649, the king is executed. He's executed because the parliamentarians and the people have decided that they're, they're, there's no peace with Charles I. There will never be peace. Because you, in a weird way, it's an obvious thing that this king can't be, he can't be seen as beholding to Parliament. He's the king. And you can't put the king back on there and expect him to all of a sudden realize, oh, well, I'm actually not the power here anymore. It's you guys. Um, so they, they realize pretty quickly that there would never be a moment's rest while Charles I was on the throne. After the death of Charles I, the protectorate comes into effect, and that's the time in which it was basically a dictatorship under the Lord Protector, Oliver Cromwell. Uh, He really effectively smacked Parliament into a functioning body. Uh, He was even offered the crown but refused it kind of reminiscent of Caesar, uh, and his dis- dictatorship lasts until his death in 1658. He goes on to have some masterful uh, military engagements and some terrible, terrible stuff done in Ireland, but uh, but we'll eventually get to some of those uh, battles later. The 1658, then the Army's new commander is George Monk, a man that had been really involved throughout the entire Civil War. He played a part in, in, in most of the events that were occurring. Uh, he oversees the Restoration under Charles II in 1660. So that is the Battle of Nasby. Uh, in closing, I think it's interesting to think about what Nasby would be like, or what, what England would be like without Nasby. Uh, had Charles II won the Civil War, it'd be... If, I just love the what if there. It really lays the path for the modern United Kingdom. Uh, the aftermath proves that the country needed a strong executive in the form of like a Cromwell to really curb Parliament, but that Parliament could, if needed, remove or put in place uh, that executive. So it, it's one of those symbiotic relationships that are really interesting to see how they play together. It also went a long way to limit the power of the royal family in the future. Uh, Nasby and, and the outcome of the Civil War is huge in that. Uh, one of the side shots here that's interesting is you have the movement of a ton of Scots from America to or, or to America from England and Scotland during the 1630s because of that persecution by uh, Charles I's uh, archbishop. And then after the Civil War under Cromwell, many of the royalists and upper-class members moved to Virginia and the colonies to uh, get away from the Cromwellian uh, iron fist. So you really have the two sides, both the parliamentarians and the uh, royalists, being early planted uh, in the colonial American ecosystem those those two thought processes that mentality is really t- starts to take root fairly early on here in in the colonies uh, in closing again I think it's uh, it's fun to 
think about a bunch of different what-if scenarios. Uh, I'll put some of those up there on the Instagram. Uh, this was a long process to get this one out, but it was mainly because it's summer here in Maine, and that means that it's very busy. So I appreciate, again, your patience. One of the main so uh, sources that I used for this was Martin Marix Evans' uh, NASB 1645, The Triumph of the New Model Army from Osprey, obviously great, illustrated by Graham Turner. I also used Paul K. Davis's 100 Decisive Battles, and again, the Cromwell uh, Great Lives Observed, edited by Maurice Ashley. If you get a chance, pick up the Osprey book, pick up Paul K. Davis, and I don't think The Great Lives Observed is out anymore, but if you can find it, all three were really, really great sources. The Osprey one has some absolutely fantastic maps, some really, really great photos and images, so definitely worth picking up if you have the ability to do that. Uh, next up, we have two smaller shows. I'm I'm committing myself to get two shows in September. The first one is going to be on Lake Tresemene, 217 BC, Ambush and Annihilation of a Roman Army by Nick Fields, uh, illustrated by Donato Spedler. And then the second one is... Uh, oh, this one I'm excited about too because it's the French and Indian War and I think that's fascinating. Uh, and I'm reading couple of books about it so uh, it is the battle of fort william henry so we'll get those out in september i promise you i also have a conversation with author julie wheelwright coming out soon uh, we're going to record that very soon here um she wrote a book called sisters in arms that is fantastic well worth the read uh, it's definitely something worth checking out uh thank you as always for listening for your patience for your support Definitely check out the social media stuff on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, and uh, we look forward to hearing from you uh, next time. Have a good one.